Well, good morning. I'm Stephen Cooper. I'm the pastor here, and I'm excited about what we're going to be looking at today um, in the scriptures. <laughs> There's a place to take notes inside your Bible. Um, that's not. That's last week's sermon, so if that strikes you as interesting, you can go online and download the message. And There we go. I always forget something. This week it was my Bible. Um, we're going to look at Hebrews 11 today. Just some verses from Hebrews 11, if you want to go there, we're going to read those in just a couple of minutes before I, um, before I actually want to set the stage for why we're talking about what we're going to talk about today. Um, have you ever been in a conversation where someone basically makes you feel like, how can you possibly take the Bible seriously when science has so clearly disproved it? I've been in conversations like that. It it takes so many different forms. Here's a couple of um, objections that that can get raised up from people. Boy, it'd be good if I could see you guys too here. All right. Um, I've had people tell me, look, so I'm aware of science, so I know the Bible can't be trusted. (laughs) Like, I don't have my head in the sand. You can't just talk about miracles. You can't talk about creation. You can't talk. Like, I'm aware. Like, I've been around. Like, I know that science has disproved the Bible. So you can't trust it. Um, Other people have said to me, look, miracles don't happen today, so how can I believe that they happened then? And to that I say, good question, let's talk about that, and we're going to do that today. Um, Other people have just said, look, science means that the Bible is really just for religious people. The existence of science means that this book is designed to be for a certain part of your life, and and compartmentalized part of your life, but when you're out in the real world with normal people, you know, you need to leave this behind. Um, And here's a quote from Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion. He says, You cannot be an intelligent, scientific thinker and still hold religious beliefs. It's one or the other. There are rabid evangelists for the scientific and atheistic evolutionary movement. Um, They're not all obnoxious. Some are. uh, But then so are Christians too. So let's not get too upset that we've taught people how to argue poorly, actually, and there's a whole sermon underneath that statement right there. Um, But this is why we're preaching the series, right? We're doing this series called Questions Answered, Shining Light on the Bible's Toughest Problems. And uh, and so today we're going to look at this question about science and the Bible. And we're going to see things. We're going to look at about four different points um, as we go through this, and I'll give them to you as we go, and if you want to write them down, you can. And so let's start with um, first... It takes faith to believe in a creator. Okay, that's the first point that I want you to understand. It takes faith to believe in a creator. This might not be earth-shattering revelation for you, um, but this is what the Bible actually says, and I want you to see that the Bible says it in Hebrews 11, verses 1 to 3. This is what it says. It says, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, For by it, that's by faith, the people of old received their commendation. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And so here in verse 3, the Bible says that people believe in a creation. They believe in a creator by faith. There isn't scientific proof. For a creator, and we'll talk about why in just a few minutes. But even though there isn't scientific proof of a creator, 
science does offer a ton of corroborating evidence in science. Okay, so even though you can't scientifically prove there's a creator, science gives us a ton of corroborating evidence for the claim that there is a creator. Okay, we're going to talk about this. Most people, I mean most people actually, they look at the world and they look at the universe and by observing what's here, they believe that someone or something must have made it. Okay? In fact, 90% of our country believes that there is a God. They don't all agree on who that God is or what that God is, but 90% of people believe that there is a God. 89% of the world's population believes that there is a God. That's kind of staggering. I mean, I was thinking about, wait, hold on, let's see, 11%, like I was thinking about China. It's like such a huge country that's atheistic on the surface. I know, well, it's clearly not atheistic throughout. But so the more of the world that people observe, the more of the character of God many people see in the world. Okay, so you can look at the world and conclude that there is a God. You can make the rational, logical conclusion that if something is here, it came from somewhere. And we are all sitting on, wearing, holding, looking at things that were created. You know, we, we see the stuff of the world and we know I mean, that our reality itself teaches us that things don't come from nowhere, right? That, that, that everything that is here has come from a creator. But even the Bible says that it takes faith to believe in a creator, okay? It takes faith to believe in a creator. Here's some reasons, okay? We can't see God now, okay? We can't see God. The God who created, we cannot see him. Um, also, we weren't there to see creation, so if you believe that God created the heavens and the earth, the way the Bible says, we weren't there. So it takes faith. And then last, evidence of God's existence now isn't scientific. If someone were to ask me, well, is there evidence that there is a God? I would say, well, yes, surely, of course. And they would ask me, well, what is that evidence? And it's not scientific evidence. Okay? So do we know with absolute certainty that there is a creator I think some people do. Some people know with absolute certainty and some people don't. Um, but absolute certainty doesn't come because of science. Okay? Absolute certainty doesn't come because of the scientific proof of a creator. Um, and so, let's see here. So, um, the point here is that it takes faith to believe in a creator for these reasons. Now, I, I want to make another point, though. Okay, another point. So this is point one. Point two is that it takes faith to believe in evolution. Okay? It takes faith to believe in evolution, and here are some reasons. First, we don't see things evolving now. Okay, I understand adaptation, but that's different from macroevolution. We don't see species becoming other species right now. Okay? Second, we weren't there to see the macroevolution that evolutionary theorists say happened. Right? So in this long process of billions and billions of years, you go from single, I mean, from, from energy to, you know, ultimately single-celled organisms to more and more complicated things to the divergence of the species. Um, we weren't there to see that happen. Okay? And then third... Present proof of evolution isn't possible without 
number one. Like, we don't see things evolving now, so there is no present proof that evolution happens. I mean, at least there's no present proof that it happens. It's all, all, of the, all of what we can see and observe that would make us theorize that evolution happened, happened a long, 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 long time ago, okay? What's interesting about this list is that it's identical to the list of the faith that it takes to believe in a creator. Okay, I want you to see this, that the reasons here are the same. We can't see God now. We don't see things evolving now. We weren't there to see creation. We also weren't there to see macroevolution, right? Evidence of God's existence now isn't scientific, and present proof of evolution isn't possible because we don't see things happening. We don't see things macroevolving. And so these are the same issues. So what I want you to see is that evolution is, for scientists, the best explanation. It's the best explanation of the origins of the universe and life without God. Okay? Evolution is designed to explain the origin of the universe without God. That's its purpose. Okay, scientists want to offer explanations based on how science works today, based on what can be verified today. They want to come up with an explanation that everyone has to agree on, no matter what their faith commitment or their lack of faith commitment is. Okay? And so the drive toward this is what causes evolutionary scientists to have to exclude God from the equation. What do I mean by that? Well, they need to come up with an explanation that anyone, including atheists, could agree explains the data. So they look at the data and they say, okay, how can we explain this? How can we account for all that we see without God? Because we have atheistic scientists that need to buy in on this. And so the evolutionary theory was designed to try to account for as much of the data as possible in a way that anyone can agree with. And, um, and so... So saying that God wasn't involved in creation or in the multiplication of species and that life on earth evolved the way they say it does, I think takes as much faith um, as it takes to believe that there was a creator. Um, many would say it takes even more faith to believe in evolution. And so the bottom line of this point is that I want you to understand that everyone has faith. Okay, everyone has commitments that they have made and they believe things that they cannot verify. Science cannot verify um, evolution. It can't, not with scientific proof in the same way that we can't prove that there's a creator. Um, both Christians and non-Christians look at the Bible and at science with unproven ideas about the way the world is. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone's lying. It also doesn't mean that everyone's wrong. It just means that both are exercising faith, and that's important. The reason that's important is because this should produce in everyone humility, okay? And I can't talk to everyone, but I can talk to you. And as your pastor, I want to encourage you, anytime you get into a discussion with anybody about science and the Bible, that you are characterized by humility, that you make it clear that there are things that you believe that cannot be scientifically proven. There are things that you take on faith. Now, it's not blind faith. 
Okay, it's not blind faith. It's faith that is corroborated by a ton of evidence that science has delivered to us. Uh, but we should have humility. And so arrogance, name-calling, making fun of someone else is not how conversations should be handled, um, even when it's being done to you. So I want to push then a little bit farther into science and evolution by helping you see that science, this is the third point, science has limitations. Okay, science has limitations. Um, Some of you know this already, but think about what it feels like to fall in love. Okay, don't read the quote yet. Shouldn't have put that up there. Look at me. Hold on. There's a big, like, aha here. So, So think about when you have fallen, the last time you fell in love, right? Think about that. Well, here is a... Uh, (laughs) here's a scientific explanation Um, because actually you have no idea what happened to you the last time you fell in love, but science will tell you, okay? And so from an article I read this week, this is what they say. We call it love. It feels like love, but the most exhilarating of all human emotions is probably nature's beautiful way of keeping the human species alive and reproducing. With an irresistible cocktail of chemicals, our brain entices us to fall in love. We believe we're choosing a partner, but we may be merely the happy victims of nature's lovely plan. I find that scientific explanations of love and beauty and relationships very consistent with evolutionary theory, but also woefully inadequate. I think we chuckle at this because we have this feeling, like we know that there's more to it than this. Like we just know it. And if you say, well, how do you know? Well, I just know. And somebody goes, well, that's not scientific. Well, it's because science has limitations. Science is designed for something specific. Um, When you have a friend who falls in love, you don't care that 10 out of 10 people in the same situation would also have fallen in love. And the reality is that's probably not the case. But you just want to know how the person feels, right? Man, what's she like? What's he like? How's it going? What's happening? You know, tell me all about it. Um, Here's a quote from N.T. Wright in a book called Simply Christian. He said, anyone who's passed a turn to behold rolling hills or seen the purples, oranges, and reds in a sunset can hardly say this experience is only genetics. I think he's right. Um, I remember in my evolutionary biology class at UCLA, the professor making it so abundantly clear that sex is about the propagation of genes to the next generation. Like, that's what it is. The professor said that all males in the universe are driven by a desire to put their genes into as many females as they can so that their genes would live on. He said... (laughs) And I'm sitting there going, I mean, I was a young Christian at the time. I'm sitting there going, isn't this the problem, actually, with the people sitting here in this classroom? (laughs) These men are trying to put their genes into as many females as they possibly can. I'm like, this is actually what's creating relational chaos. This is what's causing damage to the human psyche, this culture of hooking up. Like, And you're encouraging this. You're telling them this is what evolution is teaching them. This is who they are. And I think, but unfortunately, if there isn't anything else, if you're not happily inconsistent, 
That's what sex is when you have faith in a godless evolution. When you have faith in the God of the Bible, you actually believe that sex was created by God as a gift to married people. It's the physical picture of the oneness, or it's the physical act that pictures the oneness that the covenant of marriage creates. It's the ultimate physical oneness, physical, emotional, mental, even spiritual oneness that comes after you have made the ultimate commitment to sacrifice everything for this other person. That's beautiful. I think when we act as evolved animals in our pursuit of sex, it's no wonder that relationships are harmed and again, even our psyche is damaged. And so just a couple of examples of how I think evolution's explanation falls short of God's explanation. Um, But science is also limited by what it can do. Okay, think about this. Science is by nature the study of what can be repeated. That's what science is, right? The scientific method says you observe, you measure, you formulate hypotheses to explain what you've observed and measured, and then you experiment or test your hypothesis, and you modify your hypothesis and your future testing based on observing the results. Okay, so you see stuff, you measure stuff, you come up with a hypothesis, then you, exa- you, you do tests to see if the hypothesis is true, and based on the results of the test, you go, hey, my hypothesis is true, or, oh, man, my hypothesis is wrong, or i got to tweak the hypothesis a little bit, I'm going to do that again, then run some more tests. I mean, that's what the scientific method does. And so science tests the present, and it makes hypothesis about what will happen in the future. And so science is great when we're studying things in the present, I mean, science and the Bible are not against each other, right? In fact, um, God loves science. Science is actually designed to teach us more about him. The Bible says that the creation, what God has made, reveals the creator. It shows us what he's like. We can see that he's eternally powerful by looking how big the universe is. We can see how personally he cares when we see how small the universe gets. Um, Solomon in 1 Kings 3 or 4, Daniel... In, uh, in Babylon are two examples of people who had incredible faith in God and also gave their heart and soul to studying and understanding the science of the ancient world, okay? And so science is not against the Bible. In fact, Francis Collins, right, is the, oh gosh, President Obama appointed him to be the most prestigious scientific position in the whole country, and he's a believer. He's a Christian, He's evangelical. He he trusts Jesus for his salvation. He both loves science and the Bible. We're going to talk about that more. And so science, with all of its precision about cause and effect, um, it's designed to study the present. But when science begins to make claims that can't be verified through experimentation, it's not science anymore. Okay? When science begins to make claims that can't be verified through experimentation, it's not science anymore. It's speculation, and in some cases, it's a religion. The kind of faith that is required is on par with the kind of faith that any religion would ask its adherents for. Science has no explanation for where the Big Bang came from. 
okay? It can't. I mean, it can speculate how the Big Bang might have happened without God, but it can't account for where everything came from. Um, it can only offer attempts to push back the question. And so I know now science oftentimes says the universe has been expanding and contracting. And so the Big Bang was simply like the latest in the post-contracting expansion. And really all that does is just it pushes the question out however many billions of years, because at some point it came from somewhere. Um, and there's no scientific proof for that. Like, you can't verify that. Um, it's speculation based on trying to tie what little information we have together with the narrative that the rest of the scientific community will buy into and support. Um, I think it's interesting that scientists actually get kind of poetic when they talk about even the Big Bang. And so here's some... So here's some statements that scientists have made about the Big Bang. One scientist said that the Big Bang was a singularity of infinite density containing all the compressed mass of space-time. Like, man, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, huh? I mean, I know what a singularity is. I was a math major, but like saying that doesn't make it so. Um, another scientist said, this is, this is my favorite, um, that the Big Bang was a single ineffable point of stupendous fecundity. I just, yeah, I just like to say the word fecundity. I mean, that's um, not a very scientific definition, right, or explanation. Um, and then someone else just said, it's a point with the entire universe in it. Okay, so... I get that that's what it is. That doesn't explain it, though. It doesn't tell us where it came from. That's just a statement, and there's no way to prove that scientifically. Um, and so, again, science is designed to study what by nature can be repeated. But when we look into the past, we're doing so much more than scientific inquiry. When we look into the past, now we're actually studying history. History is the study of what by nature cannot be repeated. Okay? We were here last week, but here we are again. We can't repeat what happened last week. We just can't. We can't repeat. Time just continues to march on, and though history repeats itself, history doesn't really repeat itself. Um, history is the study of what by nature cannot be repeated, and so this is what we need to understand, both when we look into the past, that when science is studying science, it's great, but when science begins to do history, it's left the realm of its limitations. It's now doing something it's not meant to do. So think about miracles in the Bible. Okay, science says that miracles are impossible because they can't be verified, right? They don't happen regularly or predictably. And so science, um, if the Bible wants to say, if the Bible wants to say that miracles happen, Science replies and says, well, for me to verify these miracles as actually happening, they have to continue to happen today in ways that science can observe and measure them. And since they don't, they must not have happened. And here's what's funny. Because if you say miracles don't happen today like they did in the Bible, that's exactly what the Bible says. Like you're actually agreeing with the Bible. 
Um, in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles' miracles were designed by God to be a once-in-history verification of their authority to establish the church, to found the New Covenant church. And so you're never going to have miracles like that ever again. Because once the foundation has been laid, then you build the house on top of the foundation. And so miracles are not scientific. They are impossible and they are special in the world. They don't fit into the realm of science. But miracles aren't impossible. If you think about a different way of viewing the world. I think miracles are reality when you have a God who cares enough about the world to act in it. And so again, what I just said doesn't prove that miracles happened, but it just says, look, we have faith that the miracles in the Bible happen because we believe in a God who made the world and has all power and can do whatever he wants. And so our faith in God is what gives us an understanding and ability to say, yes, I believe the miracles happen. Um, evolutionists, um, atheistic evolutionists would say, well, miracles can't happen because we don't see them happening anymore. And again, that argument doesn't, I mean, it doesn't fit the study of miracles. I think it's important for us to remember that the Bible is not a science book. Okay? Now, Understand where the Bible speaks, it speaks truth. But we have to remember that the Bible actually, remember from a few weeks ago what the Bible is? The Bible is a covenant document. Okay, this is a document that was designed by God to extend the circle of his family love to include people on earth. And so the Bible is God's way of extending to us his family love. That's why we have the Bible. The Bible wasn't meant to be a science book. It wasn't meant to have a written account of a scientific um, presentation of information like creation. That's not the purpose of the book. The purpose of the Bible is for God to say, I made the world. I love the world. I love you. Come back into a relationship with me. That's the purpose of the Bible. Now, one of the biggest contradictions that people find between the Bible and science is the age of the earth. And so I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this. Um, current evolutionary theory says that the earth is four and a half billion years old. Um, the most confined reading of the Bible, the, the view of the Bible that says that all of the genealogies in the Bible are complete, and that's... I think there's good reasons to believe that the genealogies in the Bible are not complete. But if they are complete, then the Bible presents that the earth is 6,000 years old. Okay, so you have 4.5 billion years from science, 6,000 years from this particular interpretation of the Bible that I think has major questions to it. And we'll talk about more of that in a minute. How can you reconcile these things? Right? How can you trust, like, let's say it's not 6,000, let's say it's 10,000 years old. Right? How do you reconcile 4.5 billion with 10,000 years? Um, how can someone say they believe the Bible when it is so opposed to what science says? I just want to tell you that there are lots of different ways that Christian scientists have answered these issues. Okay? So I'm just going to give you a few of them. Um, some Christian scientists believe that science is wrong and the earth isn't old. 
Okay? There are um, organizations and people out there that will, that will look at all of the data and they will interpret the data as saying that the Earth is actually only 6,000 years old and the data itself proves that. Scientists that are evolutionary or think that the world is old are just wrong. They're misinterpreting the data. Um, they get involved, they get very heavily involved in things like they actually claim that the speed of light has been slowing down since creation. And if you can say that the speed of light is slowing down, then there's other things that you can do scientifically that would, um, that would give an indication of age with dating and stuff like that with the earth. But so some scientists say the science is wrong and the earth isn't old. Other scientists, Christian scientists say that Bible interpreters are wrong and the Bible doesn't claim that creation happened 6,000 years ago. Okay, and so there's a bunch of variations of this. There are some who say the genealogies aren't complete. <laughs> and so it's not 6,000 years old. And if you press them, they'll say, yeah, the earth's actually 10,000 years old or 15,000 years old or somewhere in that ballpark. And you're still at the same issue, right? You haven't really solved the problem if you're trying to figure out how do you reconcile 4.5 billion with some thousands. Um, but in this group, these, uh, these scientists would say that the days in Genesis 1, they're not literally 24-hour days. Um, some would, and, and some of these people would actually believe that evolution did happen. So there are some scientists who would say, no, no, the Earth actually is 4.5 billion years old, um, but that evolution still is impossible unless God was the one who caused life to come. God was the one who actually was sort of like kick-started all of the different species multiplication, all the different kinds of animals and stuff. And so this is a big group of people that say that the earth actually is as old as evolution says it is, but God was present every step of the way. And um, some have even said, and this is like really wonderfully practical, they've even said that um, the reason why God did this 4.5 billion years was to show us how patient he is. Yeah, when I heard that the first time, I was like, oh, that felt so good. <laughs> I need that kind of patience. Hopefully not that long, but, um, but certainly humanity may need that much time, right, before we figure this stuff out and, and really learn to, to turn this around. Um, and so, so that's the second group. The, it's not science that's wrong. The Bible interpreters are wrong, and the earth is actually this old. And then there's this third group that are kind of in between, but I think this really deserves its own category. And there are scientists that say God created the earth as a mature earth. And so it was created some thousands of years ago. Um, so trying to do justice to the language of Genesis 1, um, trying to do justice to, uh, to that, but that the earth was created then with the appearance of age. And so this view says that God didn't do this to trick us, but it was required for the world to be habitable. Okay, so if you want to plant something in the ground, you need to have soil that actually has nutrients in it. And it's possible that God could have created the nutrients, but he might have created the nutrients being the death and decay of centuries, you know, or, or years of death and dying and turning into fertilizer. You know, and so God could have just made it that way. Um, and so it was required for the world to be habitable. Um, now, what this view has going for it is that if you saw Adam and Eve right after they were created, and you said, and someone said, how old do you think they are? You'd probably say, I don't know, 23, 24, 
right? And they're like five minutes old. And so God made them adults, um, and that's how God made the entire world. I'm kind of attracted to this position, um, to be honest, just so you can know kind of where I am. This, this position attracts me because I do want to do justice to the Bible, but I also don't think God is lying. I think that God tells us truth in the Bible, and God also tells us truth in creation. Um, and there are things that make the world look like they're really, really old. And, um, and, and sometimes I think, well, maybe, like, because again, why? Why would God do that? Because it would be trickery. If you don't have the Bible, you might not know that God made the earth mature. And to that I would say, well, so yeah, there's actually a penalty for not knowing God's word. There's a penalty for not understanding what God has said about the world that he's made. Um, I also wonder if an ancient earth or an ancient looking earth may be God's way of reminding us that even before creation, He's been around for a long, long time. And so I think, I mean, the apparent age of the earth could just show a little bit of a taste of eternity past that God has always been. And so we should realize that we've been given an earth from a God who is so much older and wiser. um, And we ought to follow him in, in what he says. So I don't think, I think, well, depending on where you are, I think that you can be a Christian and hold to any one of these positions. I think you can be a Christian and say that the earth isn't old. You can be a Christian and say that the earth is old. You can be a Christian and even say that you believe that life evolved, as, you know, but God was required every step of the way. Um, and I think you can believe that God made the earth look old. Um, I think that if you believe in evolution, even theistic evolution is what it's called, um, you're going to have to do some gymnastics with the language of Adam and Eve. You know, with the language of Genesis 1, you're going to have to come up with an explanation because the whole Bible assumes that Adam was an actual historical figure. Um, And so I think you're challenged in that place, but there are people who try. And um, again, I think that, I mean, to me, what is most important um, about that, this part of the discussion. What's most important, I think, is that you believe in Jesus. If you understand that you are a sinner in need of God's grace and that Jesus came and lived the life he should have lived and died the death he should have died, rose again to conquer sin and death, to bring you back to God. Um, if you trust Jesus with your life and for the forgiveness of your sins, you will have a relationship with God no matter what you believe about the origins of the world. Um, and sometimes our view of what happened in the beginning is a maturing process, and it's not a requirement to become a Christian. Um, So two books that I would recommend to you on this subject, because again, what can I do in 35, 40 minutes, right, in a sermon, hopefully is to get a discussion started, right, where you can see some of the scriptures, you can wrestle with um, just some of of what we're talking about. But the first book is, it's by Tim Keller. It's called A Reason for God. He's a pastor in New York. Uh, It's called Belief in an Age of Skepticism. And there's one chapter in here called Doesn't Science Disprove the Bible? And he takes the seven questions that most get asked and shows how, um, really shows how even skepticism has an underlying faith that can be questioned as much as the skeptic is questioning the Christian faith. 
So I'd highly recommend this as a book. And then this other book is called Redeeming Science by a gentleman by the name of Vern Poitras, P-O-Y-T-H-R-E-S-S. Um, good old Vern, is a, he's a professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. This is, he's, a, he's got a PhD in mathematics as well as a PhD in theology. So he plays both sides and does a great job of understanding the scientific positions that he is seeking to, um, dis, like, to deconstruct and to, to look at through the eyes of faith. So those are two books that I would highly recommend. Um, and then where I want to I wanna remind you that um, in, a, in hearing a sermon or information like this about science in the Bible, the temptation to think, oh man, I have to believe in a certain thing before I can come to Jesus, uh, before I can become a Christian. I just want to address that just for a second. I want to share with you a verse that is from Matthew's gospel. This is after Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, his disciples came to him. So these are the disciples who followed him. They came to him to meet him after he rose from the dead, okay? And in Matthew 28, verse 17, look at what it says. It says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So even in the face of the resurrected Jesus himself, some doubted. I think what's important is to know that they came. They began a process, right? They came to Jesus, and even after seeing him, they doubted. There are times when our doubt is because underneath, we may not want to admit this, but underneath, we really don't want to have to obey God's authority. And there are times when our doubt is really stemming from that. We don't want someone telling us what to do. We don't want to have to submit our life, and so we will throw doubt at everything we possibly can, even when intellectually we know that what we're doing isn't honest. Um, but then there's other times when doubt is real in the sense that you really don't know for sure. Um, and if you're in that place, I would encourage you to press in and like, talk, ask more questions. These are two books that will help you think through this from a, both a scientific and a Christian perspective. Um, and so even in your doubts, you want to bring your doubts into the conversation and, and pursue Jesus. Pursue Jesus and understand um, Jesus because I want to stop where we started. And that's that I want to remind you that it takes faith to believe in a creator. Okay, it takes faith. You're not going to have all of your questions 100% satisfied. Sometimes you kind of have to leap. You have to take the leap and before you think, oh man, I don't want to do that, that sounds scary, you're already doing that. Okay, all of us have taken a leap of some sort. You believe something about the origins of the world. You believe either evolution or not. You believe that there is a God or you don't. You believe in things that you cannot verify. When you go to the doctor, when you get surgery, yes, you try to listen and you try to like factor things in and you do your internet research to make sure the doctor knows what they're talking about, but ultimately, you're putting your faith in someone or some idea or a process or a procedure that you don't know how it's going to turn out. And I just want you to know that, that, that faith is actually characteristic of the reality that we live in just because we can't know everything. And so it takes faith to believe in a creator. What's wonderful, though, is look back at verse 1 of Hebrews 11. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
What that verse means is that faith actually connects you. It gives you assurance of hope. When you have faith in Jesus, you don't just, you're not just hoping for the best, but you are putting your faith and you get an assurance that comes from God. God gives you assurance that defies scientific proof. When you put your faith in Jesus, God sets his love on you in a way that you can't experience. You can experience it. You, Romans 5 says that hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. God will come and dwell with you. He will be your heavenly Father and his presence will be with you. And so when you have faith, you will have assurance of what you're hoping for and the conviction of things not seen. What that means is that you will actually, like the things not seen is the wonderful world that God is making, how God is renewing all things. He's in the process and he is going to bring everything to complete and perfect restoration and renewal. And when we believe in Jesus and we begin to experience the power and the love of God in us, we begin to change. We begin to see our own hearts transform. Our minds begin to change. We become more loving. We become more forgiving. We become willing to do things that like, are just silly, stupid, like off-the-charts, sacrificial um, in life. That's what the rest of Hebrews 11 actually says. You can read the rest of it this week and see if you have this kind of faith. The writer of Hebrews says this is the kind of faith that it brings about. It says this is the kind of faith that would cause people to rejoice in the plundering of their goods because they know they have an inheritance waiting for them that is infinitely better, infinitely better. And so faith in a, cre in, in, in a creator, faith in Jesus produces in us a renewal that will change us, it'll change our families, it'll change the city of San Diego. Um, faith in evolution, I don't think provides that kind of fruit. I think faith in evolution leaves you f needing to come up with an alternative explanation for why you should be a good person. Um, it leaves you needing to look outside of science um, to come up with reasons, rational reasons, why you shouldn't try to make sure your genes propagate uh, in the next generation as much as you possibly can. Um, and so I think even just looking at the fruits, I invite you to trust Jesus. Come, put your faith in him, and see what happens as you begin to live a life of faith. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for both calling us to faith in you and also showing us the faith commitments of alternative views of the world. I pray that you would, that you would help us um, not to arrogantly go out and argue with people, but help us to humbly understand how much we depend on you um, and how much faith we have uh, in what you've revealed in the Bible. And I pray that you would help us also to see the faith commitments of our brothers and sisters, um, both in the church and outside the church, who are having faith in evolution, and enable us to have good conversations that are honest about our faith commitments so that we can examine them um, and challenge each other. 
Lord, I pray that uh, because of the assurance that you give with our faith, that you would renew us so that we would renew the city and be the kind of people that can love others, especially when they disagree, uh, and, and can display your sacrificial love in a way that would draw others to yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.